Hello, you cat and dog people. This is It's Training Cats and Dogs, the show for people with both cats and dogs who want peace in their home and peace between their animals. I'm Naomi Rotenberg, your source of practical strategies for keeping everyone in your multi-species household safe and sane. And today's episode is a chat with a wonderful guest. We have Hannah Brannigan on the show today. She is the author of Awesome Obedience and is self-proclaimed trading nerd. She fits right in. With the belief that everyone, dogs and humans alike, learn best in an environment free of criticism, Hannah breaks down complex skills into bite-sized, accessible pieces and develops practical strategies and techniques that leave her students with a sense of achievement and success, which we all need in our lives. She's on a mission to make training fun and enjoyable for dogs and their handlers, which means optimizing positive reinforcement techniques across species. She is fascinated by behavior and learning and passionate about bringing innovative, science-based solutions to the dog-human learning space. Hannah has a background in both human sports and biology. Now she applies that knowledge and experience to the world of animal training and canine competitive sports. She enjoys training and competing with her own dogs in a variety of sports. For competition obedience DVDs, Obedience Fundamentals and Beyond Fundamentals have received rave reviews from trainers all over the world, and her students have earned advanced titles in multiple countries. Hannah is the host of the popular dog training podcast, Drinking from the Toilet, which focuses on the often inconvenient intersection between positive reinforcement philosophy and reality. Her mentorship program, Zero to CD, gives trainers a complete step-by-step blueprint for earning their first level obedience title with curated support along the way. Hi, Hannah. I am so excited to talk with you. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I listen to DFTT religiously, and it's majorly cool that you're taking the time to come onto its training cats and dogs. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. So as fans of this show know that before we dive into stories and advice from you, I'd like to do a quick icebreaker with each of my guests so we can all get to know you as a human a little bit. Okay. Um, So we are going to play a quick round of two truths and a lie about Hannah. Warning, um, I'm notoriously bad at this game and it's really quite silly (laughs) that I insist on continuing this tradition of embarrassment at the start of all my episodes. Um, But it has been shown that this is what the people want, so this is what you get. So Hannah, what two truths and a lie do you have for me? Okay. Um, I was the 2006 North Carolina State 4-H'er of the year. I have a special super talent of starting lawnmowers and two-stroke engines on the first try. And my favorite color is blue. Okay. I love it. Crap. All right. So 2006. So now I have to try to figure out how old you are and whether that would qualify you for 4-H. And two strokes. uh, That's notoriously difficult. Favorite color is blue. (sighs) I'm going to go with that... It doesn't. It takes you more than one stroke to operate machinery like that. It actually takes infinite because I cannot start a lawnmower to save my life. Uh, Yay! Oh I my guess, gosh! Yeah, 
I've actually moved away from any kind of internal combustion engine as much as possible and everything is battery operated if I can manage it. <laughs> Yay. Oh, well, you know, you like all of us um, now show a, a weakness for mechanics. Um, I as well am not great at those things. But in addition to that, when I was tasked with mowing my lawn, um, as a kid, I discovered that I'm allergic to grass and broke out in complete hives and wasn't, that wasn't a chore of mine anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> yay. Um, so 4-H, was that the start of your animal interests? Um, it was definitely an expression of my animal interests. <laughs> I think uh, my parents were looking to give me an outlet for what I was already doing. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So tell me about, mm -hmm. sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I think, I think my mom was desperately hoping that I would make human friends if she put me in some kind of social um, thing. And if it could be about animals, then maybe I would also develop human social skills as well. I don't know. The jury's still out on that one though. <laughs> well, I feel, feel like we're kind of all, all <laughs> of us animal people are, uh, <laughs> have a little bit of that inside of us. So obviously you started out having animals growing up. Um, so tell me about the your history with both cats and dogs living together and also kind of your current animals um, and what the cast of characters is like. So growing up, um, I was not allowed to have a dog. My mom had cats and I was told that the house was too small for a dog. Um, now it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a point of, of trauma that as soon as I was in high school and was almost out of the house, they got my brother a dog, but that's okay. That's between me and my therapist. But the first thing I did when I got out of the, the dorms in college was acquire a dog. Um, so, so there, <laughs> I don't need you. Um, the story. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, you know, I, I had been volunteering with rescue and, and stuff even when I was in college. And then as soon as I had an apartment, I brought home one of the puppies um, at the shelter where I was working. Um, and he was the one who actually got me into dog training because like I think a lot of folks who end up um, in training professionally, he needed a lot of help. And in the process of trying to figure out how to help him, um, I got kind of hooked on training and yeah, um, one thing led to another. So you have your first project dog that we're kind of all familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. and now you have a, a flock, uh, in more <laughs> ways than one of animals. So how did you kind of add to your household? So now as an adult who is you know, primarily answerable only to myself, um, I have acquired additional dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so the number I've still, still relatively active in rescue, you know, just kind of depending on where I am with my life stage and, and babies and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, at, at times the number in the house has been as high as seven. Um, I don't think I've dropped below three since I hit that number. Um, so I had a Sammy was my first dog. Um, 
and he had a lot of behavior challenges. But then as I learned to work through, he had a lot of reactivity and aggression towards other dogs, towards people, sometimes towards me. Um, and I managed to get kind of those, you know, more, more pressing emotional challenges under control. I also got really interested in, in training tricks and then training some sport behaviors. And so then I wanted to get another dog. And in my head, I wanted to get another dog that had less problems so that I could do more of the fun training and spend less time managing him. And um, like, what if someone else could pet sit for me? So I had a little bit more freedom and I could go for walks that weren't in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so then I got that's when I got my first Belgian Shepherd and then I got another Belgian Shepherd and, um, and then another Belgian Shepherd and then a Terrier and now a Border Collie. Um, and in between I fostered for Belgian rescue. I fostered for German Shepherd rescue. I've also just fostered for wh- whoever needed, you know, something. So I've had entire litters of puppies here and, you know, and their mom and then everybody got placed and I've had um, like all kinds of, we had a lot of hounds around here because of the culture uh, effectively. It's very popular beagles, lots of beagles come through and beagle mixes and, and things like that. So um, yeah, so there's a, a lot, you know, a lot going through at one point after graduate school and I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, um, I was working in a vet clinic and then that was how I was, I was paying my bills because I was working as a vet tech during the day and then teaching dog training classes at night. Um, because you know, what else do you do other than like work 18 hours a day? (laughs) And I ended up bringing home, um, my first cat as an adult who was, signed over to the clinic because of uh, inappropriate urination and she was a young cat she was declawed um and she was just really pretty and sweet and friendly and they had brought her in for euthanasia and that's a super i think she was maybe three um, at that time um her name was whiskers (laughs) and i just i don't know it, it i offered and you know, they, they just didn't want her anymore because she was ruining their floors. So they signed her over. I brought her home. Um, and then my next cat, similar story. I was no longer working as a tech, but I was training there. And um, another cat brought in, same story. Um, and I'd had success with that first cat. So I was like, sure, you know, that's fine. I don't mind washing things. Uh, <laughs> And then my second cat was what, or my, she's my third cat, but the second one at, at the time was like Whiskers lifespan, you know, um, she had a, a good, good quality of life. And then, um, and then Clementine joined us. And then um, somewhere in the middle of that, the timeline gets a little confusing. I was uh, working with some uh, trap release spay neuter um, with the, to try to, work with a colony of feral cats um, in my area. And one of the, one of the the females that we trapped decided that actually I'm not that feral after all. And (laughs) 
when I tried to release her, she wouldn't leave. <laughs> <laughs> and then she like effectively followed me home, which wasn't, it's not that far, um, but she followed me home and took up residence under my porch. And I didn't think that much of it because usually you don't see him again after you, after you trap him. Um, so like, okay, but then it became quite clear that no, she lives here now. And I guess I have another cat. So that's my third cat. She still goes by gray cat because she's not staying. Um, <laughs> referred to like, that's the, Oh, that's the gray cat. And then, you know, she lives here now. So I guess I better figure out how to, you know, take care of her and, you know, keep her rabies vaccine up to date. And is she still outdoor or does she come inside or does she live? She, in- she primarily considers herself an outdoor cat, but she does has come in, um, especially as she's gotten older. She's, this is, she's probably 12 years old now, which for a semi feral is extraordinary. Um, so she will come in particularly like this time of year when the, the weather is, is poor she'll she has decided that perhaps it is not so bad um it might be worth the risk um to spend the night um in the house house um but she is very quick to find an exit if anything gets gets too much i tried for a while to make her an indoor cat because i have complicated feelings around cats outdoors both for the cats and the and for the the wildlife population which is part of why we were trying to do this um population control stuff with the, the feral cat colony. Um, and she uh, did very poorly <laughs> as an indoor only cat and, and got better and better and better at finding ways to get out. Like she is a liquid um, and can get out of dryer vents and like not just looking for doors to bolt through, but she can make holes in screens and, um, squeeze herself out of out of things, and when I stopped trying to make her come inside, a few months after that, she was then willing to. Well, if you're not going to trap me inside, I will come inside. Ah, uh, choice. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if it's her idea, it's okay. Right. Um. So, <laughs> but your other cats were indoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have had both experiences where you're you have multiple dogs and Mm -hmm. at least one cat um and at least the the cat who you have now appears sometimes in the house Mm -hmm. um so when you brought them home um how did you make sure that everyone was safe um and get everybody to live together effectively yeah, so I will be honest. The very first cat I brought home, I did nothing, and I got very lucky. Um, well, I'll say there was a there's a selection effect there, and that part of why she was so appealing was she was very just chill and friendly and outgoing, and she's in the clinic, and like dogs are going by, and she's in the the cage while I'm trying to like figure myself out, and um, that was part of what sold her. Mm-hmm. For me, um, I think if she'd been miserable and climbing the walls of the cage and and very you know upset, probably I don't I don't know I don't know I was a different person at that time. Um, I would have probably still found a reason to bring an animal home, but um, so I didn't do a ton there. I did a lot. Well, 
I did a lot of behavioral management around her um, litter box behavior because that was what I knew I was getting into. And I'm sure that some of that overlapped into assimilating into the house with, um, at that time I had two dogs um, and I was living in an apartment. So, you know, (laughs) small space, no money, no time. Um, That's why you should add as many animals as possible. (laughs) Um, So I did do a lot of things that overlap quite a lot with what I would do now if I were bringing a new cat um, into my house today in that she started off in you know, a small area. I, she, I had her in in my bedroom um, and the dog's area, they had crates that were in the, I'm going to call it the kitchen, but that's generous for <laughs> what the, the setting was, but it was the best, you know, it was the best I could do. Um, and she had her litter box and I had a lot of enrichment stuff that would go on with her and they're trying to keep like create a safe space for her so that she was using the litter box as much as possible and not my bed. Um, and that's very much what I, you know, would do if I were to introduce a cat now here. Um, and she would have supervised outings into the rest of the apartment again, mainly because I didn't want her to either get upset and pee on something later or pee on something right then because she, she would. Um, so lots of, lots of management, Lots of um, like gentle stress reduction, trying to keep her successful and relaxed and calm, and see lots of calm behaviors and um, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what did you do with the dogs when she was out? So they would be the dogs that I had at the time were pretty cat neutral themselves, which is not true today of my current dogs. They would generally be hanging like we would be in hangout mode when I would open the bedroom door so they would be laying on their beds or um like sammy loved to lay on like the tile of the the kitchenette um Mm -hmm. so laying on the kitchen floor anyways because it was cooler uh or i mean that's my story that i make up you lay on the the tile i can say that observationally um and stormy would usually either be on her bed or she would be on the couch next to me and whiskers would come out and she would explore investigate toys that I had hidden around for her um, and the dogs would mostly ignore her that's an ideal situation that happened to be a little bit you know advanced by some Mm -hmm. of the management that you did um, for another behavioral reason but you also incorporated enrichment so there's management enrichment all that kind of stuff that like you were saying is involved in a, you know, a good <laughs> introduction plan um, that we might do intentionally. Um, so you mentioned that your current dogs are not cat neutral. Mm-hmm. Number one, how do you know this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and number two, um, what would you do differently or what are you doing differently, especially when gray cat decides to come in the house? Yeah. So um, it's a little bit the re- the reverse situation with the dogs in that gray cat was here first um, for I'll use figments, the, the most obvious example. So he's my border collie. Um, and he exhibits a lot of stalking behaviors towards the cat. Um, stalking. Stalking. Um, I, was, I was saying it's shocking that a shocking. Border, yes. <laughs> border collie stalks a cat. Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> he stalks many things, cats included. He does not progress past stalking to completion of a predatory 
um, sequence of behaviors the way that that many dogs might. So um, it gives, which is nice because it gives me space to work with. I don't love it directed towards the cat because it's not cool. Um, <laughs> we don't we don't do that to friends. And um, there, so what the, the main thing that I've done with with Figment and, and with the cat with regards to that is um, if I'm going to have Figment in the area where I know gray cat hangs out or is likely to be, and I'd like for him to be off leash, I will set her up with a food toy or something out of sight. So she's, I give her something else to do where we're not going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and otherwise I would tend to, I do a lot of avoidance um, with the two of them. So I know that she would like to hang out on the the railing where she can see in my kitchen window um, at the back porch. And that's the dog yard area. And with the older dogs, that was an issue. The railing was above dog height um, for them. So it was a nice, safe, you know, 3D perch where she could see what was going on, but out of traffic. Um, and she likes to watch there because I'm going to come out of that door to feed her so she could keep an eye on that and, and encourage me if I was taking too long. <laughs> um, but with, uh, with Fig going in and out of that door, it was becoming a problem because he would get stuck and he would stare. Um, and for my terrier, they, there's a fun dynamic um, with, you know, with multiple dogs sometimes where one dog's, you know, arousal related behavior becomes a trigger for the next dog's arousal related behavior. So uh, Ruby, my terrier, gets very excited when Figment goes into stalk mode and will get excited. So the border terrier gets excited at the border collie, <laughs> which it just... It, it becomes too much very quickly and no one's been hurt, but I could see it happening. So we don't, we don't like to repeat that. So um, I modified the back porch so that gray cat no longer has access to be able to sit there. And so instead she sits on the fence on the other side so she can see me through that kitchen window. Um, so I started off. It's very, <clears throat> it's very technical. Um, I, not everyone's gonna have access to this, but I took a bunch of empty Amazon boxes and I stacked them up in the corner so she couldn't get to the railing. Um, so it's very aesthetic, <laughs> but effective. And then I did eventually get like just a piece of hardware cloth um, and staple that across that access so she just couldn't get up there. And so then I have a shoot where as the dogs are coming out of the back door into the dog yard, um, if she wishes to perch on some area of the dog yard, she's doing it further away mm -hmm. from the back door. The problem was that where she was sitting was like right. So when you open the back door, the catch right, right there in your face mm -hmm. um, because of the angle of that railing. Um, and since what she doesn't, she doesn't actually want to be in the dog yard. She wants to watch me preparing dinner um, through the kitchen window. She found a different place to sit where she could meet that need <laughs> and it wasn't, wasn't really really here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah great so you you did something you know that a lot of people when you're talking about management they're like oh well i have to you know pay a bunch of money for all these gates and what you know but you have to one wonderful idea is to just like test with 
some crap that you have around the house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, whether a barrier there might be useful. If you see a change in behavior, then you can make it more permanent and uh, less, you know, trash like. Um, but <laughs> some people never feel the need to progress past that point. No judgment. I. Mm -hmm have some things that are pretty janky in my house. Yes. Um, but, so, so Figment, you're not working as much on like breaking his stare. Um, no, I really don't actually. Um, I do almost nothing directly to address the, the problem behavior. Um, almost everything that I've done with him has been in building and reinforcing other behaviors when the cat might be present. Hmm. Uh, or building reinforcing other behaviors in general and then also when the cat might be present um give an example yeah, yeah um uh, walking with me on leash um down sit uh go to station um so going to his bed or mat um staying on station um we do a, a variety of, of tinkering a lot of different sports together. Mm -hmm. And so any of his sport things, one of, one of the challenges that I've had with all of my cats has been that because I do um, a little bit of work with them with food, any training opportunity with food, they consider to be a training opportunity for them as well. So if they hear me preparing a bag of treats or getting my clicker out, um, they are suddenly underfoot quickly <laughs> um and with you know with some of my dogs it doesn't really it's just it's just you know moderately annoying but it's not uh it's not the end of the world it's not a big deal um with figment it would totally derail a session because he couldn't take food if she was moving around or might have moved or might be going to move um and so that's when i started to okay if i want to do a training session with fig in the front yard I'm going to need to put a food toy around the side of the driveway for gray cat first. So like that's part of my setup. So she gets the food toy. Then I bring him out because if I bring him out and then she hears me training and runs up to try and get involved, it's over for him. It, it certainly was, you know, in his first year of life. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I did a lot of practicing just our, our, you know, our repertoire of behaviors um, effectively away from the cat. I mean, not necessarily, like, I wasn't necessarily, like, I'm doing this specifically so that he can be in the dog yard with the cat loose or the cat be can be in the house with him. It's less of a problem in the house for various reasons um, when she is in the house. But, um, but again, it's, it's what I would do anyways. I want to reinforce a range of behaviors, build, you know, repertoire, get strong, strong behaviors on cue for other reinforcers as well. And then, you know, she'll finish her food toy and then come check out what we're doing. But at that point, I've got a bunch of reinforcement deposits in real quick. And so he's able to be more flexible behaviorally in her presence. Um, and I have things that I can reinforce. And I have probably even more importantly, really strong, um, in case in case of emergency, you know, break glass 
cues that I can use with him. If the wheels are starting to come off, I can send him back to the house. I can send him to his um, to his station. And those are very, very heavily conditioned. So even if he is starting to go into like a problematic lockdown mode um, and get stuck, I can get him back to the house without having to to do anything exciting, which is usually worse. Because if I try to interrupt, if I move quickly to interrupt the dog, I will inevitably startle the cat, which now the cat is running, and that's the worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. So you just described a really interesting procedure that a lot of people don't think about. They always think like, okay, well, the cat is the you know the cue for these behaviors, so I need to like have the cat appear first and then do some cue some alternative behavior, mm-hmm. um, and that works for a lot of people. Um, but what you are adding to that is kind of priming him. <laughs> so you have this kind of warm up scenario, right? Where it's like, here, remember, here's like a bunch of things you can do, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Front loading reinforcement for easy stuff when the cat is not around. And then inevitably she's done eating and will mm-hmm. show up. So that's um, a really great way to get yourself more likely to be successful um, when that trigger does appear. And I actually feel pretty strongly about this. This is a strategy that I use for an, in a number of situations. Like it's a general strategy that I apply to training. Um, whenever there is something where you are stuck with a hard training problem or challenge, pick your, pick your language for your framework. Um, and this comes a lot from just kind of where I psychologically go and my own personal problems. <laughs> um, when I am confronted with an obstacle or a challenge, I get very tunnel visiony. Um, and I can get real locked into this is the problem. I have to solve the problem. The problem is the problem. And I don't make good training choices when I'm in that space. Um, I tend to look, I try to get too much. I get effectively very emotionally invested. And so then if there's a setback, I handle it poorly, which means I make even worse training choices. Um, and so whether it's trying to work through car chasing or, dog dog behavior or dog cat behavior um, or you know adding distance to healing or increasing the height of a jump in agility um, I have found that applying a strategy of working very indirectly around the problem usually gives me better results than trying to attack the problem directly so instead of I'm just gonna keep adding distance to this or I'm just gonna keep you know I'll start with the cat hundred feet away. And then every training session, I'm going to move her 10 feet closer and 10 feet closer and 10 feet closer. Um, instead going really, really broad first, doing a lot of lateral work first. So um, lots of different behaviors. So I'm really thinking about flexibility, um, putting a lot of play, a lot of, a lot of new behaviors in the playlist for that animal. Um, I love, you know, one of the, one of my things is, uh, what do they call it? The dilution is the solution to pollution um, or reverse it. So if I have a, a you know problem behavior, one thing that I can always do is add a bunch of other behaviors into the repertoire so that at the very least that behavior still, especially a behavior I can't eliminate, I can't extinguish, I can't really stop it. But if I can give you 30 other ways to also behave in similar set of conditions, 
then at least the irritating or problem behavior comes up less frequently. Um, mm. so just give them a longer playlist and then that, that irritating song doesn't come up as often. Um, and a, a lot of times that goes a long way towards just livability mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with an irritating behavior. Um, but if I'm teaching a lot of different behaviors and I'm adding a lot of other unrelated distractions or just stimuli, you know, just, just stuff that is, is different, but not harder. Um, I get this behavior that's then a lot more likely to also be performed when the cat is present. So if he can go to station, you know, in the kitchen when I'm preparing food and he can go to station when um, my kid's eating and he can go to station when we're watching TV and he can go to station when I'm on a Zoom call and he can go to station when I'm setting up jumps in the yard and he can go to station when the UPS guy comes over and he can go to station while I'm vacuuming and he can go to station while I'm doing all these things. Then the cat being there is just one more difference, not always harder. Yeah. And I do way better training when I approach it that way. It's, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and especially when you're having, you know, interfamilial conflict, it's really stressful. And so getting tunnel vision is very common. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a really nice way for people to think, be able to think about it psychologically, like you were mentioning, right? It's, you know, it's like, <laughs> like, I need to fix this now. Oh, I totally, it becomes a, like a panic thing. And every little sign that something's gone wrong, I asked for a little bit too much in this session. One, I, I love to go to, like, first of all, my actual superpowers is catastrophizing. So I'm really good at that. Um, so any, yeah, any little thing, I'm like, oh my God, we're doomed. There's all a waste of time. It's terrible. Everything's gone to crap. Um, I'm crap. This is, this is awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I get, you know, I'll get very panicky, a lot of anxiety around it. Um, which, you know, then kind of lead, has led to a little bit of avoidance, which turned out to pay off in this particular case, where if I do a lot of other training around the problem instead of through it, going on a bear hunt, um, <laughs> enough times I've actually gotten, I've distracted myself from the thing that I was stressing out about. I mean, this is totally from displacement. This is, this is me, you know, checking Facebook and cleaning my desk instead of working on the presentation that's due tomorrow. But um, when I would come back to it, the behavior was enough times better all by itself without ever having actually directly addressed it, that it was really reinforcing. I was like, what if I made an actual like strategy around this? What if I actually systematized this a little bit and, and approached it deliberately? Oh, that works even better than just accidentally doing it this way because I didn't know what else to do and I felt stuck. The best things and ideas come when, <laughs> when it just, when you least expect it. So it sounds like you were mentioning that, you know, it's really like not been that much of a problem in terms of safety for your, between your dogs and your cats. It's more just like being inappropriate, especially if there's, you know, this stalking border collie that Mm -hmm. is completely stuck staring at you. Um, Number one, if that were to happen, I know it doesn't happen that often. How does gray cat react? If it, when, when he's stalking her? Yeah. Um, she'll run. Uh, if she can't run, she'll, she'll swat him. Um, 
she has swatted other dogs in the past. I'm thinking rugby definitely took more than one hit. Um, but in those contexts, she was usually, usually again, up on something. Cause I always like to provide, make sure that there are always ways to go up, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and um, they're usually investigating in a curious, but rude way. Mm -hmm. um, so very different body language than the stalking border collie. Um, and in the, in those cases, you know, one or two, like I'm coming in to sniff. Oh my God, that, that sniff is, is sharp. <laughs> and now they'll take, give her like every other dog. In fact, this is why it took me longer than it should have to realize I needed to address it is all the other dogs in my house go out the back door. And if gray cat is sitting on the porch railing, they go out the back door shaped like a C. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll be as close to the wall as possible to get to the stairs, to go into the yard. And it's just been normal um, for so long. And it's not like they're not, the dogs weren't like, you know, crying or, or want, not wanting to go out outside and you know, they weren't cowering. They were just like the polite way to go past that animal is to give them as much personal space as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and, so, and that was just very normal for all of us. And, and it took me, I don't know how long, I mean, I'm not even gonna say, cause it would be embarrassing. Um, a few repetitions to realize that that wasn't automatically happening with fig and I was going to have to take action. Um, and then, and then, yeah. And I was like, well, what if I just stack the recycling next to the back door so she can't get up to that part of the railing? Uh, and okay, well that, that works. And now he's out in the yard, which everybody has more space. So the tight space issue wasn't part of it. Um, and she has lots of choices. So, yeah. Yeah. I call that a sticky spot. Where yes. <laughs> every, yes. Every time or most times there's going to be some issues. So number one, can we modify the spot? physically or the routine um, mm -hmm. in order to address it um, before trying to come up with something more training oriented. Cause that's more work. Um, so much more work. So yeah. much more work and often not necessary. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> one thing that's really important about what you just talked about that C shape, right? They've learned mm -hmm. that the polite thing to do around this particular animal is to give space. So a lot of people might say something like, oh, well, are, you know, they're not scared of her, but there, it was mm -hmm. a punishing experience to get too close. Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, is this something that we should work on um, to make it a less stressful event to go by the cat. Um, and at least the way I tend to respond to these kinds of things is, is it, has it resulted in appropriate behavior around each other versus like you were saying, whining, like true fear or stress mm -hmm. behaviors, right? So if the same thing with the cat, if the mm -hmm. dog, you know, w ends up walking in a C shape and the cat then says, ha ha, now I can, if it's a different kind of cat, right? Yes. Is, you know, then says, excellent, I will now pounce. Mm -hmm. um, and another inappropriate behavior comes out. Um, that tends to be when I say, okay, we need to, to work on this. But the whole goal of the kind of training that I do with dogs and cats and that you're talking about is just like, can we find appropriate ways to exist around each other? <laughs> um, and if it's not, a problem then it's not a problem mm -hmm. yeah if it if i you know i look for is it is it affecting 
either access to things like resources that they need to get their needs met. Like if, if it was preventing the dogs from accessing the backyard or I was seeing it leak into other areas of their life, um, I would have different feelings about it. It was a very stable pattern for years. Um, nobody's behavior changed. Nobody's behavior got stronger or, or degraded. Um, the cat sat where the cat sat and this is how we go out. We just walk as close. We walk right next to the siding instead of next to the railing. When we exit the door, um, their body language stayed the same. They didn't look at the cat. Um, there was no change in their requesting to go outside um, there was no change in the requesting to come inside. It doesn't happen coming inside for whatever reason. It's just the going outside. Um, coming inside, they're just as happy to stand at the back door until I open it, even if the cat is 18 inches away and nobody moves. Hmm. So I don't know. Yeah. that's a, That would be a fun one to try to, to puzzle out. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I get a lot of questions of like, well, you know, is it a problem? Um when the cat, for example, tends to like, you know, becomes a little bit more scarce um, than they were <laughs> before yeah. the dog showed up. Um, and I think that's kind of a gray area with what you're talking about, but I would call that a problem mm-hmm. um, because access to you as a social, you know, a, a, a secure base, social interaction, whatever you think yeah. the function of, of the cat being close to you and not really feeling like they can do that anymore. Yeah, it's like a degrees of freedom kind of thing. Or, or I really like, um, if you're familiar with uh, Emily Strong and Allie Bender's book on enrichment, and I had a conversation with them on my podcast about enrichment. And um, I think... I really think a lot about measuring quality of life in terms of flexibility of behavior um, of the size of the repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, I this is getting a little bit too nerdy, but there. Thing. I want. I want to say. I th- is it? I think it's from um, coercion and its fallout, or uh, related um, books or articles from around. Or at least I was reading it around the same time that I read coercion and its fallout. Um, and the idea that we, it, may, it might be from B.F. Skinner himself, that um, one of the signs of aversive control is you see a narrowing of the behavioral repertoire. Or aversive control results in narrow and rigid behavioral repertoires. And that's one of the ways you can test for aversive control. Mm. And I think about that a lot with the dogs I look at, particularly the rescues, or if I'm coming into a house with a you know, rescue situation. Um, and I, I have the rescue that I have right now who's sleeping behind me um, is a really fairly extreme example. Um, she has such a narrow repertoire of actual behaviors that she exhibits like, like three behaviors. Uh, she's doing one of them now. And, and the, this, and this one is one that has developed, like she came with two and now we've got a third behavior. And when I see an animal being put in a situation and it, it appears that their expression of behavior is shrinking, then I think that that's a, a huge red emergency flag. Something is, wrong in the environment. Um, and I want to see that, that repertoire expand. I want to see more different behaviors, more flexibility of behaviors um, versus sleeping more and more and more, spending all their time in the guest bedroom, um, avoiding the kitchen. Like with 
with cats or also some, I, I, this is also something I notice with dogs um, when young kids come into the picture, mm-hmm. um, the older dog or, or actually older dogs with a younger dog coming into the picture, they're all of a sudden sleeping a lot more and they are, and they are spending most of their time in progressively smaller parts of the house. Mm-hmm. Of their um, own volition. You haven't told them. Yeah. Nobody's, nobody's blocking them. They're just, there's less chaos um, right. in this part of the house. And so I'm just going to stay in there and I stop going into the family room. Um, I stopped trying to go into the kitchen um, and eventually they're sleeping by themselves in a separate room more and more and more. And that's, their world is getting smaller. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a, we can't ask them how they're feeling, but if, for what I can observe, that so far is my favorite way to measure quality of life. And if I need an intervention. Yeah. And that's a situation I think a lot of people who have cats and dogs might like, might say, oh, they're fine. Like they're not fighting. Yeah. Because there's no like knockdown, drag out big behaviors that we're seeing. Um, but it's more subtle. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good way for people to measure objectively. Um, what were your animals behaviors like before and what are they like now? Um, and seeing if there's a difference um, just based on the <laughs> the advent of this new or strange um, addition. So one other thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and we had talked about that this before we hopped on the recording, is, you know, you're, it seems like everything's generally under control in your house, <laughs> um, especially cat dog, you know, stuff. It's, there's, it's, there's good management in place. Um, and you're working on the things that need to be worked on specifically inappropriate social behaviors from fake. Um, but you have not mentioned, um, some low points that might not involve cats, uh, Mm -hmm. but just interspecies, um, understanding of what could happen (laughs) between different animals. Um, and so why don't you tell this story and then we can delve into it a little bit. Sure. Uh, so in addition to dogs and cats, I also have chickens. Um, and that's probably, they're easier in some ways and harder than others. They're easier because they don't live inside the house. They never come in. Well, that's not true because my kid brings them inside the house. But um, generally speaking, their living quarters are totally separate um, from the dogs. However, they are very much prey. Um, I think it, it, even with Figment's behavior, for the most part, most of the dogs that I've had come through my house seem to see the cats as, I want to say animals, but that's not, they're all animals. Um, I don't know, closer socially, I guess, to dogs and people. Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and on the flip side, most of the dogs that have come through my house have not behaved the same way towards chickens, sometimes much different, um, much more, I mean, across the board, more predatory behavior towards the chickens than towards the cats, both like within the same animal and then also like across the the population of my, my small population of animals of, of study. Um, and the primary way that I deal with that is through fencing. Good fences make good neighbors. Um, 
but chickens can fly. And we've had some accidents. We've had some tragedies. Um, in fact, rugby, my terrier, also sleep looking very innocent behind me, is the reason that I have the current fence that I have. Um, because we had a tragedy where he got out of the fence and in with the chickens. And um, fortunately, I am made of money. So I just, you know, went out um, and plucked some money from the money tree and, and paid to have a taller, more terrier secure fence <laughs> installed around the dog yard, which helped for the most part. Even before that, we've had, I had, they are spaced apart by years. So it's not like um, a mass killing, but we've, I've had chickens that were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and on more than one occasion. Um, and that's a big problem because my birds have names. I mean, it's a big problem anyways, because of, I, you know, worry about welfare. Um, and I don't think that's cool, but um, it's a, you know, it's a particularly emotional problem because our, our birds are names and they are pets, you know, almost in the same way as, as the dogs and the cats. Mm-hmm. They just happen to also make eggs, which is nice. <laughs> but um, yeah. And that's, you know, been terrible and required a funeral. Um, and, um, I probably put more training into that more directly than with the cats, um, because, because of that, the, the downside is so, right. <laughs> so large. <laughs> I mean, like safety issue. Right. Yeah. 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 Triage, important. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about how like within the same dog you're Mm -hmm. seeing differences in predatory behaviors um but also with between dogs Mm -hmm. um a lot of people ask me how do i know whether my dog is going to hurt my cat i'm seeing barking and lunging you know it looks the same to me i don't know what i'm looking at um do you have any insight in terms of like how you know that a certain cat dog is gonna be more predatory towards the chickens than the cat. What are we looking for? So I've kind of two thoughts along two two lines here. Um, one, when it it almost doesn't matter when the size differential is so great mm-hmm. because um, I'm thinking of at least one. I don't remember if it was the first, if it was the first death. Um, my dog Gambit, who's otherwise pretty low on the like scale of predatory behavior. Um, killed General Disarray, mm-hmm. um, which I know was his name, but it was, I truly believe an accident. Mm. I think he was playing. But it did not matter because if you have a 60-pound dog and a three-pound chicken, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he was just as dead. So, <laughs> so I'm real, real conservative with, with that. And on the other hand, rugby um, at 15 pounds was not playing um, when he had his first notch in his collar. Um, so I don't, I'm, I'm trying to think like I actually don't put that much I don't worry that much about are they playing or not playing if it's a big dog and a, and a, and a smaller cat or a, another a pocket pet of any kind mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. um, so um, either way there's still a specific set of behaviors that I'm going to be working towards in the presence of that other animal and they are going to be 
distance increasing. <laughs> There's going to be, you know, less movement, less oriented towards that other animal, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's stationing, you know, walking on a leash, whatever. Um, and I'm going to be moving away from any behaviors directed towards that much smaller animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just like I would with a human baby, you know, like it, it takes so little. It takes an accidental paw swipe from a German shepherd um, and that's it. You know, so I'm I'm very conservative with that. Maybe more conservative than I mean, than others might be. Um, with regards to, well, you know what? Actually, I let me walk that back a little bit because I think I think I'm still going to answer it the same way. Um, I'm looking for how what is the range of behaviors that I'm seeing in the presence of this other animal. Um, that's probably one of the, if I had to describe it, that's one way to measure what I'm looking at. Um, that's probably an easier way to describe it than describing specific behaviors because every, everyone that was popping up as you were talking is, I also would have an exa- exception to. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, like in general, I find silence to be worse than barking. Mm-hmm. Um, it, particularly in a non-border collie, silent stalking behavior is really scary um and usually you know if we have a it's a pit bull mix or a husky or a non-herding dog um and i have i mean every dog's an individual so i always feel like i need to qualify that um you would absolutely have border collie from border collie lines that will have a complete predatory yeah <laughs> all the um but in general my terrier, I can tell you, goes right from, you know, stock, chase, grab, consume, um, all the way down. Um, animals are a food source for him, in his opinion. So um, very intact, very primitive. But um, there's a, a, I'm thinking of a specific case that, that I worked with that was, I was doing um, private lessons with in the home. Um animals were other animals were involved including a cat and this was a we'll call lab pit bull something mix you know um and her behavior would go from loose and wiggly when i got there to still and silent when the cat was present Mm. and that change of behavior um and how consistent it was and how few other behaviors she could do when the cat was present sent up all my antenna. Um, and we did end up rehoming that dog. If she were loose and wiggly, but barking, but also could sit and down and play with a ball and um, go to her station and, you know, you know, do spin and do targeting um, when the cat was there, I would have felt different, mm-hmm. but she could really do one thing um, if the cat was in sight and it was very difficult to interrupt. It was very difficult to redirect. Um, and it was such a high contrast from the way her behavior was otherwise that it was, it felt very significant. Yeah. I have a case like that right now. Those are um, fun. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we're, trying to we're doing this very scientifically actually where it's like uh, i think you'll appreciate this that you know we're measuring the latency of the cat is behind a a bear complete visual barrier they can smell Mm -hmm. um 
and we're measuring the latency from when that initial like stare point stiffness mm-hmm. happens to when the dog does any kind of ear flick or like any kind of disengagement at all. Yeah. Um, obviously we've reinforced recalls and all of that stuff heavily outside of this context. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. it's in her repertoire. She knows to come, mm-hmm. she gets her ball. She chases. it's not, it's not even food guys. Like this is use, this dog has chase drive. Mm-hmm. So we're having her recall and then chase a ball away from where the cat. Yeah. Goes. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So we're like, okay, we're stacking everything in, the, in, in favor of this being a, reinforceable alternative behavior of like, Mm -hmm. I sense cat, I move away from cat. Um, But we're testing whether all of this reinforcement actually decreases the latency from initial freak out to disengagement. And Mm -hmm. if after a while we see no change, then we know we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, a, it's a it's a longer road. Yeah. 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 You're looking at more resource, more investment. Yeah. Yeah. And and people might say, well, why don't you recall her um in or like in that moment to mm-hmm. you know reinforce? And and we do sometimes, but again, it's real she's really sticky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. you're burning out that recall cue <laughs> pretty hard when you know it, it and we want eventually to her for her to offer that behavior yeah right so that's why we chose that training plan um mm-hmm. for all of you who are wondering <laughs> um you can do it many different ways but that's what we're going for and you know we're gonna reevaluate after mm, i think we've decided on doing like two or three exposures per day um and then seeing if after a few weeks <laughs> we get any you know if we see yeah. significant. Um, so yay, nerdiness, yay, science. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah. But important, right? I mean, like, at some point, you have to get the information that you need. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's such a good way to measure that flexibility, though. It's like, how long do you stay with one behavior before you're able to switch to another one? Mm-hmm. And you highly flexible behavior would quickly switch um, in, in your, you know, you're in a set of conditions, you're in a picture where multiple reinforcers are available how quickly can oh this one's not available let me switch to this one like how quickly can you that's i mean i think that's very much a way to define flexibility so i think that that's a really excellent way to put a number on it um that's easily observable yeah well i'll keep you guys posted on how it goes (laughs) um we just started this a few days ago but um yeah well some your there was a podcast episode that you did that was all about um, you know, data. Um, Mm -hmm. that was really influential for me. So, um, and I come from a science background too. So I'm like, how many spreadsheets can we apply to this case? Um, with this kind of thing, I mean, just to circle back to the psychological aspect of it with, because the humans are always most of the equation, not that, and not owner shaming here at all. Like it only in that, if I'm the person, I'm the one who's putting in the financial investment, the time investment, the the emotional investment. Um, having some kind of record to look back on and say, okay, this really is improving. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're, especially when you're in the middle, because you'll a lot of times with any any behavior change, you get a bunch of change up front that feels great, and then you get to the middle and you the change slows down a lot, and it's really hard to stick with it when you're in the middle of that 
whatever it is that you're doing, you know, trying to change something about you. I'm going to read more this year or whatever. It's yeah. this, you know, the beginning of the year. So we're all going to be different people all of a sudden this year instead of last year. Um, when working with, with animals, with especially with a heavy, um, a heavy topic, like, like in our household stuff, you're in it every single day. You're having to live it. Like the hardest part about managing pet behavior in your home is the 24 seven nature of it, just like parenting. So, you can get sucked down in into this isn't getting any better, but if you can pull up a spreadsheet and you know, actually it took her 45 seconds to look away from the cat six weeks ago. And now she's doing it in three. Like that's a big difference. Um, and remembering to look back. I mean, that's the primary reason I keep records at this point. <laughs> is so I have something to look back and say, okay, you know what? I don't, I, I it's not as, it's, you know, I, I am making progress. Um, Cause otherwise you get so stuck on how much further you had to go and you forget how far you've already come. Yeah, especially when you have these big projects, like, you know, you have to train multiple animals, you have, mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a while, yeah. um, setting expectations and really working on those small but steady improvement. Um, with such an emotionally charged situation. Yeah, super, super important. Well, thank you, Hannah, so much for this talk. I know everyone's going to get a huge amount out of it. Um, do you have a, if people want to follow up with you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, you can follow me on social media. Um, I'm spending most of my time on Instagram at present, but I'm also on Facebook and not you. If you look for me under my name, Hannah Brannigan, um, you can find me there. Um, you can also, um, go to my website, hannahbrannigan.dog. Um, and that's, where you'll have like contact form and email. If you, if you really actually want to reach out, I recommend email um, versus DM because uh, I'm much better keeping up with my email. So <laughs> I'm the opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think you just have to pick one channel. I can only put all of my energy into one channel. So um, email's a little bit, more established workflow. So that's where I, I make sure that I finish that uh, by the end of the week. Sometimes the DMs are just, I have to declare bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget, everyone should listen to Drinking from the Toilet because it is awesome. Um, one of my favorite dog podcasts. Um, so I really appreciate all of you joining us and thank you so much for listening. Now, if this episode helped you feel less alone in your struggles with your cats and dogs, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Hannah knows this very well. (laughs) Your support helps other people find this show and get access to cat and dog specific content. And there isn't that much out there. So it's important. You can also follow me on Instagram at praiseworthypets. I'd love to hear your suggestions for who I should interview next and what topic we should discuss. And if your pets aren't getting along and you're seeing some of those big feelings and big behaviors that we talked about today from your cats and your dog and you want to get some peace between them, I am working on a new program that will take you step by step through getting them from cranky to coexisting. So... Go to praiseworthypets.com slash course to get on the wait list. And that is all for this episode, you wonderful cat and dog people. Thank you and see you next week for more It's Training Cats and Dogs.